Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Do you know about restoration ecology? It seems to me, and that's what people are practicing now around the world, many of them, led by scientists like our next guest. And it seems to me that it is so much in keeping, you know, whether people have a faith or not, it is so much in keeping with what God entrusted to us when he placed us in the garden and said, now look after the joint. If we get it wrong and we know why things go wrong in our world, well, it's our responsibility and opportunity to put it right. One of the things God did when he sent Jesus was to provide a way for us to be put right with him. And I think that movements like Restoration Ecology just go to show that, in essence, human beings have a real capacity, predilection, a desire to put things right. One of the issues we need to work on here in Australia is the platypus, the survival of the platypus. The National Risk Assessment suggests declines of up to 30% across the range of the platypus since European settlement. That's amazing. One of the people working on this, a joint research project really, by the University of New South Wales Centre for Ecosystem Science, someone I've known for a very long time, Dr Richard Professor Richard Kingsford. Richard, welcome to Open House. Thanks, Stephen. <laughs> I know we've actually been talking ecology for, for decades um, on and off, and, and I just want to thank you for the work that you do in this amazing field where you're restoring things. That must feel very satisfying. Oh, look, it is. I mean, I think we hear a lot of sort of bad news about what's happening in the environment. And, and, and you know, it, it, it is challenging because there are, you know, lots of environments and species that are degrading and, you know, their survival's uh, very much at risk. But working in an area where essentially you're improving things and, and things are improving in the environment is, is really uplifting. Hmm. Restoration. I think it's one of the things that we're, we are born to do as human beings, look after the place and be part of the restoration that's going on. It's good. Yeah, look, it's, it's great. And, um, and particularly if you know what you're trying to restore um, some of these ecosystems to and, um, and you know how to do that and you can track it um, in terms of, of how that changes. And, you know, we've got projects that are involved in... Um, uh, rivers where we're using environmental flows to restore um, wetland areas and working with the government and also, you know, in, in desert areas, which is also where we're interested in, in sort of a focus. Now, we shouldn't pretend other than that it can be a very controversial, very political uh, area, but have you seen things change a little in the decades that you've been doing this work? Uh, look, I mean, if, if we're talking about you know the, the the whole environment. You'd have to say that w- what I have seen is is definitely a deterioration in the decades I've been working, mm-hmm. and um, that's largely because um, you know a lot of what we do and a lot of the goods and services that we get from the environment um, require you know habitats to be cleared or rivers mm-hmm. to be dammed, and and so that's that's essentially the signature that comes through when you're tracking changes in the environment but but within that we're you know we've got some really exciting opportunities as well to mitigate some of those threats but also to restore other areas and the attitude of people towards that has has that changed i mean you mentioned something like environmental flows and and immediately that's a high conflict area and yes people's livelihoods depend on it and so on and there's whole you know, debate we have to have there about land use. But do you think people are more 
in tune now with the idea that we look after the ecology and then there's multiple benefits right down the line? Look, look, I think I think that broadly Australians are. Mm. Um, I think the challenge we have is just as you put it, it's highly controversial, affects people's livelihoods, and that's a rich opportunity, if you like, for fierce lobbying. And and I think one of the challenges, particularly for the environment, it doesn't really have a voice, and it doesn't. Um, you know, very transparently sort of make money, if you like, and and provide jobs. Although in the long term, if you look after your environment, it, it does deliver. But it's not well integrated into the sort of economic paradigm yes. that we have and, and, and also the political paradigm in, yes. in many senses. So in these big sort of um, controversial issues, um, there does come a, a very bipolar type approach to it, whereas I think a lot of Australians do um, want to do the right thing for the environment. They don't perhaps know what to do for the environment, but they don't necessarily get to the, sh- the, the sharp end of some of these decision-making mm. processes, which can be highly political. Our guest is Professor Richard Kingsford of the University of New South Wales. We're about to talk about the iconic platypus, and and you're a bit of an icon yourself in the ecology <laughs> world. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the iconic platypus. This this is a thing that is of great concern, and it's probably, you're right, the environment doesn't have a voice, the platypus certainly doesn't have a voice, and yet, in some ways, that, that creature features so loud in our national consciousness. If you say the platypus is is threatened, people actually take notice, I think. Yes, they do. And even the most specialised of biologists take notice because there is nothing like this animal anywhere else in the world. You know, an egg-laying mammal. <laughs> and it's not surprising that, you know, where the first natural historians arrived in Australia and sent one of these things back to the British Natural History Museum. They didn't believe it. They just thought, this is a hoax. Someone's got some weird duck and, and, <laughs> and put the bill and stuck it to a, to a possum. So, but we do have this amazing animal living in our rivers. And I guess the things that we, and we, we've been working on, on, on these animals now for the last three years um, with an Australian Research Council project. Um, but the thing that we, we've found and, and is essentially the challenge is that these animals only live on the strip, sort of either side of the Great Dividing Range from northern Queensland down to Tasmania. And that is also the same footprint, if you like, where a lot of our major developments mm. on the environment have occurred in the rivers and, and you know, there are, there are dams up and down there which uh, essentially fragment populations of platypus and then you know there's pollution in the rivers as well what do the platypus need then for a healthy uh, ecology uh probably like most animals they need food <laughs> mm-hmm. so, which is a very simplistic way of uh, um essentially well for example when we dam these rivers it changes the flow regime and and a lot of the invertebrates downstream don't do very well so you get a crash in the, the food supply for platypus. And then, of course, um, changing the seasonality of rivers and 
And sometimes uh, in some river systems, you know, there are a few pollutants, although platypus can, as long as there's food in the rivers, they, they do pretty well. What do um, they eat? They eat uh, yabbies and things, do they? Well, someone who has been working with platypus a lot longer than I have pretty much said anything that moves <laughs> um, on, on, on the invertebrate front. So, uh, you know, they, they have amazing ability to find food because they've got this hypersensitive bill, hmm. which has lots of tactile sensors, but also can also detect electrical fields by their prey. So they, they shut their eyes, obviously, and they're, and they're fossicking out there. So yeah. anything from a, a caddisfly to a shrimp to a dragonfly larvae, all of those are a, a fair game. And they shovel around with that bill as well, so that lets them sort of dig through things. That's right. But, so I, I can, I, I'm starting to get a picture then. If you change the flow of the river, it's going to have quite an impact on whether those tiny little critters are there for, the, for them to even find. That's, it, that's exactly right. And the other part of the challenge particularly is, and, and again, you know, we, we've known this for fish, for a long time is that when you put a large dam in the middle of a river, it it separates those platypus from each other. So, you know, there, there are there's no way for some of the large dams for a platypus actually to connect up with its former platypus up in the top end of the river mm. because they just can't get past the dam wall. I mean, mm. on the River Murray, for example, the biggest dam that we've got on the River Murray is, is Dartmouth Dam, on the meter meter and it's 120 meters high mm. and 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 so nothing really gets past that from a sort of small platypus point of view so here's here's a good example there's a balance needed obviously we need water to live yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's okay but as an ecologist as a restoration ecologist then what do you do to try to encourage the ecology on either side of that dam uh, to yeah. be platypus friendly how do you do that oh look so this is um this is part of the holy grail for us <laughs> i mean we're, <laughs> we're trying to work out what a platypus needs, which is not a trivial question. And that's largely because not many people have actually worked on platypus. I mean, this is one of the interesting things. Is I'm, I'm surprised. Um, well, actually, after doing a bit of work on I'm not so surprised because it means you have to become nocturnal. <laughs> 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 and And unlike things like koalas or wombats, um, probably less so wombats, but koalas. I mean, you can actually see those animals. Mm. Researching a platypus is very difficult because you get glimpses. And so to actually be able to understand what their biology is um, and where they're going is extremely difficult. And we're just starting to sort of get some of the technology that sort of helps us a little bit in terms of understanding mm. that. We've been putting uh, little transmitters on, within platypus so we can track them moving up and down rivers and work out how big a home range is for a particular platypus because that then takes you to saying, well, what's the sort of habitat that a platypus actually occupies in its lifetime? And, right. and that provides you with the opportunity to say, okay, well, we know this river is a good river. What makes this river good and that one bad? And so that's where the restoration comes into effect. The more challenging thing is how do you move platypus above and below Dam, so we're probably way off trying to understand that, but there may well be ways of doing that. And I think the other broad question in the sort of restoration ecology world or any ecology is, is you don't want to make the same mistakes you have in the past. So when you come to think about 
putting in a new dam, you have to look at some of the, the long-term ecological costs of that, as well as obviously the benefits for people. And mm. and are there ways of, of making some of these things a little bit more friendly wow. in terms of the organisms that live there? You've announced, I suppose, during the week that you're seeing localised extinctions and perhaps a 30% decline in the number of platypus since uh, since Europeans arrived. Yes, and, and you know, that's comes from a combination of factors. As I said, the Australian urban footprint, if you like, is very much in platypus world. It's right up and down the Great Dividing Range, which means that all the things that we do in our rivers, particularly um, in terms of water supplies and dams, but also clearing of vegetation makes the banks soft, which is where they nest. And then there's lots of um, uh, examples of where platypus have died when they have got caught up in um, fishing tackle and particularly these these traps that are called opera house yabby traps oh. where, I mean, people bait those and, and yabbies go in there but because they, they'll sit under the water for hours on end and, and a, a platypus comes along and thinks, oh, look, there are a whole lot of yabbies in there. I'll go in and, and grab them. But obviously the platypus has to come up for air. Um, you know, they, can, they can't really stay under for more than about a couple of minutes. So um, there are some examples where there have been eight to ten platypus drowned in one of these traps. So there's, there's some things we can do to actually make life a bit better for platypus. Wow. Well, Richard Kingsford is with us. He's Professor of uh, Ecosystem Science. Is that the proper title, Richard, at University of New uh, South Wales? Yes. Something yes. along those lines, yeah. yeah. Is not, this a new not. approach? I, I know that environmental science really started kicking off maybe 40, 50 years ago in some respects, but to look at whole ecologies and work together in cooperative research teams, is that a relatively recent development? Uh, yes, it is. And I, th- I think one of the really other exciting things in in the sort of environment world um, uh, that people are realising, and that's part of bringing our skills to it, is that we have to go to scale. I guess in certainly in my world, the, the days of, of the environmental scientists working on a small um, part of the environment mm. have sort of, um, or if they do that, the, the question then is how does it apply to the broad environment? So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're constantly using tools like um, remote sensing and drones these days to to understand what's happening to a whole river system so that we can really advise governments and communities about what the trajectories are for that sort of system. And and I guess the many of your listeners would probably be aware of the red listing of, of, of species where various species um, around the world have been tracked over time from worst-case scenario extinct to right through critically endangered and endangered and vulnerable and and least concern. That's a a framework that's been in place for for decades. But the new framework is, is actually to say, well, we're actually not doing a very good job just focusing on species. We need to think about the environment for the ecosystems that mm. they occupy. So there's, um, and we again at UNSW and, and the Office of Environment and Heritage, we've been leading the world in thinking about, well, how do you track changes across the rainforests of the world or the deserts of the world or the coral reefs of the world? Because many of those have the same sorts of um, drivers and the same suites of species. There might be different species, but um, you have lots of the same 
types of species, whether you're in a desert in Africa or a desert in Australia or a rainforest in so Asia. The, so or the knowledge is transferable, is what you're saying. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And not it's not just the knowledge is transferable, but the understanding about what are the things to protect mm. or what are, if you're going to restore them, what are the things that you need to look at in terms of restoration? Well, that's really exciting. A lot of people will know you from the uh, from you, you regularly calling out the, the bird life in the, in the <laughs> yes, middle of right. Australia. So I can't let you go uh, tonight without asking you, how's the bird life going in the middle of Australia at the moment? What's, what's Lake Air up to? Uh, well, um, Lake Air's dry. <laughs> um, we, we did have a, a flood down the Georgian Adamantina this year, which um, was so that, that sort of flows south of Mount Isa down through Birdsville. Um, some water got into Lake Air, but, but not very much. Mm. And, and a lot of that's dried up now. But uh, we've just finished an aerial survey that covers about a third of the continent and we do that each year and we this year was our 36th year so <laughs> and we survey up to 2,000 wetlands and more than 50 waterbird species and and just a reminder for those people, we sort of fly at treetop level yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and count waterbirds into tape recorders. <laughs> Not entirely glamorous, and a, <laughs> no, that's right. and if you've got a Someone's weak constitution, it. <laughs> it's not something you'd, you'd volunteer no, for. No, in fact, in fact, this year we put a big effort into um, training a whole lot of new observers, and <laughs> as per usual, we have a fifty percent dropout rate <laughs> when it comes to people spending time in the plane. But again, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity to have these long-term data sets which are, mm. are critical in terms of understanding the ecology and trajectories of change across the continent and and 2018 um, is is a very dry year and so you know we've we spent a lot of time uh, a month and a half tracking across the continent and the Murray Darling and there's there's very few flooded out areas or wetlands out there so from our water bird point of view which we divide up our waterbirds into those that um, are different foragers, so you get an idea of the ecosystem. So there are fish-eating birds and there are um, herbivores, and um, all of those are um, have, have declined this year, and because um, they really do re- need the floods to to bounce back and breed. Wow. Well, one thing's for sure, we will get a flood. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> the cycle goes around and we might even get more floods and more droughts and more fires. And for sure. So it goes on. Richard, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Open House tonight. Thanks very much, Steve. That's Professor Richard Kingsford. He's the Director of the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales. And the wonderful work of restoration ecology. It's a great word, isn't it? It's a great idea, too, that you're restoring whole ecologies and that that work is transferable to similar ecosystems around the world. I love the cooperation that's happening in that area. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.